Darkcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. This is a breakdown of last week's episode on Israel Keys. If you haven't listened to that episode, you may want to pause this one and go back and take a listen. Welcome to the CTN Breakdown. Tonight on the CTN Breakdown, we discuss Israel Keys, Part 3, The Murder of Samantha Koenig. Welcome to the CTN Breakdown for Part 3 of our series on Israel Keys. Today we're talking about the murder of Samantha Koenig and how her abduction and murder would lead to Israel Keys' incarceration. Yeah, so we have some additional facts to add that we didn't mention in the episode, uh, as well as we have the FOIA we were able to find online. So we're going to go through some of the pieces of that as well. And it looks like someone must have requested it from the FBI at some point, and then they published it online. So it's been a pretty great uh, resource for us in our investigation. So we're going to have a couple pieces from that. We'll go into it more in depth in a future episode. Yeah, I'm pretty grateful that we found that. Yeah. Actually, you found that. I shouldn't say we. You I mean, found we, that. We, we were working together on that to night. me. I think it was what, like probably 10 o'clock at night and we were both just like diving in and dissecting it all night. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it was at least 10 o'clock because it's always 10 o'clock with you and I. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you know, the huge, the huge. But yeah, no, it was a great find. Uh, I, we'll put a link in the um in the description for folks if you're interested in reading more about it. We thought it was really interesting. Has some really good information about the case. Obviously, it's a little bit more in depth. We are going to go into it at the end of the series more, but which we're getting close to the end now. We've got one more episode after this, and then. Mm-hmm. A breakdown and then possibly a second breakdown. Uh, we're debating, so we may have two further breakdowns. But overall, we're winding down. So, yeah, uh, it's been an interesting ride for sure. Yeah. So are you ready to break everything all down? Yeah, I think so. Let's <laughs> let's get into this one. Let's get back to Israel again. All right. So first off, we're going to go through some of the information that we didn't mention in the episode here. Um, As we know, in most cases of kidnapping and abductions, family members and those who are closest to the victims are often the ones who are seen as prime suspects in the beginning. This case was no different initially. Police were actually suspicious of Dwayne, Samantha's boyfriend, because the couple Mm -hmm. had been having a pretty nasty fight via text before Samantha disappeared. And this is all according to the book American Predator by Maureen Callahan. It did strike police as odd that Samantha went missing not long after the couple had their fight, like I said, via text. What stood out to investigators was the fact that the suspect in the video surveillance was wearing a mask, which would kind of make sense if this was someone who knew Samantha and didn't want to be identified. Police were suspicious of why Dwayne and James Koenig had waited 24 hours to report Samantha missing, so that was kind of a big red flag to investigators, but, I mean, at the time, James and Dwayne were under the misconception that you had to wait 24 hours before reporting someone as missing, which yeah. we kind of see often in cases. Yeah, there's definitely a misconception with that, and it's no one's fault. I actually, up until we started doing a true crime podcast, I 100% was one of those people that thought it was 24 hours. 
I also did too. I mean, I think most people have that misconception. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like that misconception is actually fueled by the entertainment industry. So, Mm. I mean, it's not surprising that a lot of folks think that they have to wait this amount of time because oftentimes in the entertainment industry, this is what's this is what's talked about and what's shown. So oh, I yeah. completely understand that. Like all the like um crime shows and cop shows and stuff, they always make it sound like it has to wait twenty four hours. So I think there's this this belief that surrounds that. So a lot of people wait thinking that's what they're supposed to do because they're doing the they're trying to be helpful, not realizing that there's no statute on that and that they do need to just go and report if they suspect something something suspicious. But it's not common knowledge. It, it definitely – I think they've done a better job in recent years of trying to um, educate people on that time frame. But initially, back then especially, a, a lot of people had that belief. Yeah, plus it kind of puts kind of a sour taste in an investigator's mouth when it when mm. it comes to that because, I mean, if someone was missing for that long, wouldn't you want to yeah. report it as soon as you can? But. So it's kind of like a back and forth between investigators mm-hmm. and just regular folk trying to do the figure right out what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to – you're like, well, I know for me, for example, you don't want to assume too. You could be like, oh, well, maybe they're just having a moment. You know, Do we really want to go and, and get the cops involved and have it be nothing? So mm-hmm. there's some hesitancy there too. So we see this a lot. I don't blame folks when this happens by any means. Oh, yeah. It's unfortunate that it does, but I don't blame anyone for it. Maybe TV. Maybe TV. Yeah. And I mean, if you are to get in a fight with a significant other, you kind of want to mm-hmm. – you both need your space to cool off too. Right. Right. Absolutely. So that's the other thing that it's – if they got in, a, in an argument, I mean, there's mm-hmm. been times where I've gotten in an argument with my partner at the time and we've totally just cooled off and we didn't talk to each other for like honestly till the next day. Right. And that com- makes complete sense. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing to point out too, these two are really young. Like they're 18 year olds. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember fighting a ton. We didn't have text back then, but you know, a ton with my little 18 year old boyfriend. And we definitely would do that. Like, well, I'm not going to talk to you tonight, like thing, because you're young. And so, you know, like we said, it is pretty common practice for, for the people that are close to the victim to be looked at suspiciously. With good reason, because a lot of crimes, it is actually somebody, you know, related or who has a friendship or a close relationship with a victim. But it's just unfortunate in this case because we all know now they were 100 percent innocent. So, yeah. And and like you said, eventually investigators soon realized that the two had nothing to do with Samantha's disappearance and were genuinely agonizing over what happened to her that night in February. And it was actually stated in American Predator that James Koenig actually felt a lot of guilt because that night, Samantha had called him asking him to bring her dinner by the kiosk. And for some reason, like, that just didn't happen. I mean, things happen, you know? Maybe he didn't get the call. You never know. Maybe he had something to do. Oh, yeah. Or he got sidetracked. It happens. Oh, that's so sad. And it's it's awful because he actually beats himself up about it to this day as he feels that maybe – if he had done so, she wouldn't have been kidnapped and then brutally murdered. And Ugh. that's just – that's so awful. And many parents of murder victims go through this type of thinking in the grief process. It's right. It's kind of, in a sense, survivor's guilt, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. 
it's just so sad and I just you never want a parent to feel like that and it's no. it's the should have been's and could have been's and it's it's very common thinking when these crimes happen. Oh, for sure, for sure. It really is. I think it's hard not to do that to wonder, oh, if I had just been right here at this one crazy moment with this awful awful event not have happened. I'm sure, and I can't even imagine as a parent going through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's heartbreaking that that he was left feeling that way too. Yeah. So another thing that we just wanted to point out was that we didn't mention it in the episode, but during the interrogations, investigators would actually learn from Israel Keys that he'd initially planned to kidnap not just Samantha. But he'd actually been targeting her boyfriend, Dwayne, as well. Obviously, at the time, he didn't know it was her boyfriend. He just knew that Samantha was expecting a ride from somebody. So he was planning to wait for that person. And it was pretty evident that Keyes was starting to escalate in his murders. And after having abducted and murdered several couples in his past, it kind of seems like he was becoming a couple killer. It was starting to become his MO, and he was definitely moving towards that direction. So it was definitely lucky for Dwayne that Keyes decided against abducting the young man. The reasons are unknown, however, why he decided not to go forward with that plan as he ended up just going and grabbing Samantha and not actually getting both. And the detectives weren't able to get him to explain further why that happened or the reasoning behind his decision to just take Samantha and and go that night. One thing is is that homicide detective Monique Dahl was quoted in an interview as stating, quote, I don't know why he left, but he made it very clear that, you know, that was part of the plan. It was very fortuitous for Mr. Tortolani not to have run into Mr. Keyes, unquote. In that same article, Detective Dahl said that the, quote, once methodical Keyes was losing control before he was arrested. She likened this to a drug addict's need to continue to take more drugs just to match that feeling of that initial high, uh, unquote. I find that statement really, really interesting because it, it's really evident with Keys that he was actually starting to escalate at that point because it was only eight months between the courier's murder and Samantha's abduction for and murder. So we had seen before where he would go years in between kills and here he is now kind of escalating that behavior. He's going for couples more. He's doing really risky behavior. He's getting more and more daring. So I definitely agree with that assessment. Oh, yeah. And in in reading all the evidence with this case, he's brought Samantha across the street where his truck right. was parked in between an IHOP. I think it was an IHOP and a Dairy Queen. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, I mean, this was a pretty, like, seemed to be heavily trafficked area. And Right. Like we said, the snowdrifts are pretty high, so that kind of blocked some view. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, I feel like it was pretty risky behavior. Yeah. Like, seeing that it was in Anchorage and he had said before that he wouldn't have done murders in his own state, let alone town. Right. And then there he is doing this behavior. It's interesting, too, because if you look at the two cases that are, as far as we know, back to back, the couriers, he's super cautious. He goes in. He's methodical. He is very aware of his surroundings. He's very – he's not trying to draw attention to himself. With Samantha, on the other hand, it is much more brazen. It is much more in your face. He doesn't seem to be afraid of drawing attention in this instance, and that is very intriguing to me. It definitely seems like 
escalation behavior because that's what typically happens. It's usually when serial killers are most likely to get caught too is when they're escalating. Mm -hmm. They're starting to care more and more about that need to kill versus the actual covering of the crimes. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is that all these kiosks, I mean, when you have one employee working, they almost always have surveillance cameras. Mm. And it seemed like he knew that. Yeah. And he had the mask on oh, and yeah. he went anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. And he wasn't even really hiding his truck from view. Mm-hmm. It's very He didn't do the rental truck situation that he normally did. This was very different than all of the rest of his murders and abductions, for sure. Mm-hmm. One thing I think that's really interesting is that the detective, uh, Detective Monique Dahl, she actually mentions in that article that she thinks that he was starting to desire to kill pairs. And even before Keyes had murdered the couriers, it sounds like he had come close to killing a couple that was parked in a car that he had spotted in Anchorage Park. And he had also even considered shooting the police, the police officer who came to shoo him away after the the park had closed. And so that's when he abandoned his plan when the backup officer arrived. But yeah, he was sitting there thinking of shooting a cop right then and there to do what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So and was looking at taking a couple randomly from from a park. So he definitely was starting to just be reckless. Yeah. Yep. And kind of getting very unraveled and kind of losing it, honestly. I mean, Kind of like he needed more of a thrill almost because mm-hmm. what we've learned from Israel is that he likes a thrill. He likes the adrenaline. He likes all that jazz, you know. Yeah. And yep. he's been doing this for 14, 15 years. So it right. seems as though he was kind of climbing up the ladder being like, oh, let's see how far I can go today. Right. Like how far can I get this day? A hundred percent. Well, it's yeah. interesting because people always talk about like, oh, well, that serial killer wanted to get caught, blah, 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 blah. I actually don't think they – do. I think what's happening typically is that they are escalating in behavior with that escalation. It's like you said, it's a ladder. And it is like a drug addict. It is the need for more and more and more because it is an addiction. It is it is like a a constant desire and need from these these people to mm-hmm. kill. And so when you are escalating that behavior or in an escalation with a serial killer, they're not looking to protect themselves. That need is driving them more than the the need for, for protection or the need for survival, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it kind of almost becomes like the lizard brain. Oh, yeah. That, that totally makes sense. Not speaking clinically at all, but I mean, I'm kind of just like kind of relating it to when you have a gateway drug and mm. you say you like take a certain drug and then you're like, oh, I want like a better high. So you take more and it's like right. it's how these – how these overdoses happen and whatnot. Like, people are just trying to push their limit. And, mm-hmm. I mean, not in every case, obviously, but it just, yeah, you're totally right. It's it's like a drug for him. It's like mm-hmm. he needs to scratch that itch. And right, he went in Anchorage, like his home state, his home, well, not his home state, but he was living there to abduct a woman in a kiosk that was clearly a surveillance. It's just, it's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. This was in his backyard. Even his behavior after he abducts Samantha is very blatant and brazen. So I think a lot of it is that Keyes had gotten cocky. He'd gotten overly confident. He thought after 14 years, he was invincible. Mm -hmm. And so I think 
whatever was escalating between, you know, June of 2011 and February of 2012, during that eight months, I really think Israel must have been, what's the word for it? He must have been constantly on the prowl. He must have been constantly looking for victims. I think he wasn't able to to control that behavior anymore. Not that it's hard to explain it that way. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. I hate saying it like that. Like it's so like, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. unreal. But yeah, like I think he he just couldn't he couldn't stop himself at this point. Like before I think he had the ability to to kind of pick and choose. I think he was getting to the point where he couldn't. Mhm. And also something that I've just seen in reading doing all this reading and this research. I actually think in American Predator, it was stated that some of the kiosks were kind of hard to work for because in the summers, some of the employees were made to wear bikinis. Ooh, yeah. Which is strange. Um, But I mean, if if Israel had been frequenting these kiosks Mm -hmm. in the summer and whatnot, I mean... It's it's very exposing to the employee, first of all, mm-hmm. and I hope they stopped that. <laughs> um, but I mean, if you're a serial killer and you see this, you know, and you're kind of you're kind of driven by by those, I don't know, like that base. I don't know sexual yeah, desire. Yeah, yeah. So, because because um, actually, in the FOIA, which we won't get too into, like we said today, but um, there was actually a couple tips that were sent in mm-hmm. um, and it was actually from a few kiosk employees that said that they had actually known keys as going to certain kiosks right. so yeah clearly he frequented them um he liked his coffee as we heard in the interrogations so yeah it's interesting and speaking of the foyer there were some items that were seized from keys's interior of his house they seized a 22 rws rifle a Lithgow, and I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, I'm not sure, a Lithgow bolt-action rifle, an orange and gray jacket, and they also found two utility knives. On the exterior of the home, they seized body glove sled, which Ash informed me this is a brand of sled. Mm -hmm. And then they also uh, seized two pieces of gray conduit, some wood, a yellow-handled shovel, ice chipper, Two gray totes, a sawhorse. They actually, I think, confiscated several sawhorses. A large gray and black Rubbermaid tote. So these are those big tote plastic bins. That's what these are. They also confiscated a 30-gallon tote as well, which is huge. And then not only that, they took the whole shed and all of the contents that was within that shed. So, And we were looking at the – in the FOIA, they actually had photographs of the shed – it's not very big. I, I guess I was picturing that it was larger than it actually was. Yeah, it was definitely a small – it was a small shed for sure. Mm-hmm. Some other specific items that they actually called out for in a search warrant uh, in order to seize these was they were looking specifically for human hair. They were also looking for braided hair that was thought to have belonged to Samantha. So basically what it breaks down to from having read the FOIA – it sounded like to me that Israel must have cut Samantha's hair off, the braid off, and he must have kept it. I'm assuming that he either told investigators that or because at this point they probably had Samantha's remains, they were able to verify that she was missing her her braid, which sounds like he was taking a trophy, honestly, which is a whole different thing. 
They also uh, seized some jewelry. He had pre-made ligatures that they seized. There was bone fragments and blood in any bodily fluids as well as any identification cards. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They seized a lot. And Yeah, and in Bill and Lorraine Courier's case – in the FOIA or part part of the FOIA that we read, mm-hmm. Israel Keys actually took Lorraine Courier's jewelry and right. he kept some of those. Yeah, so he definitely. So I wonder if that was also a trophy for him. Yeah, sounds like he he definitely was taking trophies from from his victims. I have a feeling they probably found a lot more than than what was disclosed because a lot of it is, of course, redacted. It is still an open investigation. So as far as I I know, it's still open. I believe they're still looking for for victims. I can't imagine that they're not. So there was redactions done. But I'm going to assume Keyes was probably taking items from from all of his victims. Mm, Yeah. And actually, yeah, Nat had asked me what a body glove sled was. And Mm -hmm. seeing as it's winter, I go out in nature a lot. And I was actually on a pond. And what I noticed with ice fishing is a lot of the times – when people go, they bring a sled. Right. And they pack all their stuff on the sled mm. and they have their drill to drill in, into the ice and whatnot. Right. And I think t- at least two of these things on the list were probably what Israel may have used when he went out more than likely on the pond. Because yeah. it said that he kind of set up a shanty situation and went like, ice fishing Mm -hmm. when he was disposing of Samantha's remains. Right, right, absolutely. And it's actually said in American Predator that Keyes actually was at, I'm going to butcher this, Matanuska Lake. Oh, yep. Yeah, and um, there was actually a witness there, and he said he was kind of looking at Israel a little strange because the guy had a drill because most ice fishermen, you know, they Mm -hmm. have – they have a drill to drill down. Right. And Israel actually had a chainsaw, and he was trying to cut Ugh. a portion of the ice out, and the chainsaw actually kept dying on him. And Key said it took him forever. This is, like, quoted from the book. It took him forever. It kept dying on him. Like, the ice was, like, 20 inches plus deep. And this is just my theory. It's not legitimate. But I have a feeling he used the body glove sled when he went out with the remains. But also when he first initially cut the hole in the ice, he didn't put Samantha's remains in there. He actually cut the hole first and then put a bunch of plywood over the hole and covered it with snow. So I'm wondering if the wood that they found was the wood that he actually covered the hole with. And then he went back the next day. Oh, and retrieved it. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm surprised. I don't know. I mean, maybe it just it wasn't in in what we looked at, but I wonder where the chainsaw is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But- I'm surprised he used a chainsaw, honestly. This guy was an avid fisherman. I am I feel like it's just strange to me. Wouldn't he have you would think he would know better than to do that, you know? Yeah. It's a weird thing, but it stands out to me. Yeah, plus chainsaws are really loud. So if you're trying to be kind of inconspicuous, you're right. You know, <laughs> you're using this really loud chainsaw, right, and drawing attention to yourself. I wonder if it was more he was just trying to like rush through, and he thought maybe the chainsaw would be faster, mm-hmm. which I guess was his mistake in the end. I mean, I'm sure some people use chainsaws, but I mean, like the book American Predator states, it's like, well. He was looking at me weird because he had a 
an ice drill right next to him. I mean, right. I'm sure in most small Alaskan towns, if you went up to somebody who was ice fishing and was like, hey, man, can I just like borrow your drill for a second and use it? I'm sure they'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. Go for it. You know? Right. Instead, right. he's Absolutely. using a chainsaw. It keeps dying on him. And this guy's probably like, what is this guy doing? Like, <laughs> Yeah, he's drawn attention to himself at that point. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It is. It's just something that stood out to me. Like, why would he use the chainsaw? It just seems like the opposite of being subtle. So mm-hmm. it was it was a weird, weird thing to me. So moving forward, because this whole ice fishing thing just like really, really gets me. <laughs> yeah. Um, as we know, there was a ransom note demanded for 30K. Yep. And when Nat and I were looking in the FOIA, we actually found a segment that had another little quote from the ransom note that I was not aware of. But it says, quote, I may not use the card much in AK due to small pop, but as I will be leaving soon, I will be using it all over. So we kind of dissected this and we figured that this must have been the statement that triggered the bolo in the lower 48 states. Mm -hmm. But it also goes in to say, quote, she did almost get away twice, once on Tudor, which that's where the kiosk was, Mm -hmm. and once in the desert. Must be losing my touch, unquote. Which, oof, man. Yeah. This has to be an intentional red herring that Israel placed in the note as Samantha Koenig was never in the desert with keys, I can't imagine. No, they were in. I think he was just trying to, like, dissuade investigators from from looking in Alaska. I think he wanted them to be looking Mm -hmm. in a different state completely. And so he was hoping to draw attention to maybe, like, out west somewhere because remember he was originally from the west coast so he knows that's more akin to that area yeah and ooh, this little note mm-hmm. and actually when i was going over this with nat before we were like what's small pop and then nat was like oh maybe that's small population yeah it's kind of I, I have a feeling it's like vermont where it's like we have a, a running thing up here which is you know everybody knows everybody I have a feeling this town, this this city is pretty similar. Everybody knows everybody. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of one of the reasons he was trying to to get them out of looking in Alaska. He knew that if they started like asking too many questions, that's when he was going to get found out. So I personally think he was looking to to draw attention down south. Yeah, and it's almost like this whole cat and mouse game that Israel Keys mm-hmm. plays with in- investigators. It's yeah, it's like it almost started then. Yeah, because as we saw in episode one, he did use the ATM card in Alaska, so it's right. almost like kind of poking and prodding at the investigators, being like, "Oh, well, I use it in Alaska, but I'm going to mm-hmm. be leaving, and I'm going to be using it all over." It's almost as an as like a threat as well. Yeah, I I kind of think too. It's bragging. He's here saying like, "Oh, look how brilliant I am. You can't catch me." Like. While she almost got away, I may be losing my touch, but I still have enough to keep her hidden from you. Like, mm-hmm. that's how it feels to me. So there's a bit of this that does feel like he's almost starting he's, – he's, his cockiness and his ego was definitely starting to impact his ability to hide his crimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going from this ransom note, clearly Keyes mm-hmm. was planning this at least for a few days – and it, actually, in the FOIA, because investigators were talking to Keys, they found out from 
from Israel Keys that two days prior to Samantha Koenig's abduction, Keys actually prepped the shed as he knew all along that he planned to bring a victim there. And he actually set up two heaters, a tarp, and a sleeping bag on top of a, a foam mattress. And he Oof. put those all in the shed. And he also placed a radio in the shed, which Nat and I had talked about in in the first episode. Right. So clearly he wanted the radio to kind of drown out any any noise from his girlfriend and daughter sleeping inside, but also the neighbors. Right. So, yeah, that was probably a big red flag for the investigators thinking like, oh, well, he definitely mm-hmm. planned this. It was definitely a planned scenario. Right. And in that same section in the FOIA, it's actually stated that Keyes put Samantha's body in a tarp and then put her body in a cabinet that was in the shed. And so Samantha was hidden from view because I, I believe he didn't think his girlfriend would ever go in the shed while him and his daughter was gone. Right. I don't think that was an issue. I don't think he ever figured anybody would go in there. Yeah, she had never gone in there before. And, and Keyes was very, I think, one of those people that could be intimidating. Mm-hmm. And so I have a feeling he was very particular about people going into a shed even before yeah. he had put Samantha in there. So – like, obviously, as far as we know, he hadn't put any victims. He hadn't abducted anybody else from Alaska. So I'm assuming that this had always, like, in all the years they'd been together, this had been an ongoing thing. And he knew for a fact she, he wasn't even worried she would go in there. Yeah. And then when he returned from his cruise and he was back in Alaska, he actually removed the cabinets completely from the shed. And he even ripped out parts of the shed flooring because there was, there might have been blood evidence on them well and that kind of lends itself to to the fact that because keys was very um hedgy about whether or not he had stabbed samantha Mm -hmm. and if there was blood evidence which it sounds like there was and he literally removed the wood flooring it really seems to me like keys had stabbed her because otherwise why would there be blood evidence supposedly he he strangled her Mm -hmm. yeah i could see there being a lot of blood for the stabbing, um, mm-hmm. but he did also sexually assault her. Oh, that's um, true. So there yep. could have been yep. blood from that as well. Yeah. Ugh. Mm-hmm. yeah. But I mean, regardless, he clearly ripped out everything that had blood evidence on it. So this, to me, that's like, oh, this is not his first rodeo. You know what I mean? Right, right. He knew. Yeah. And and Keyes actually took the Adams into his house where he lived with his girlfriend and his daughter and burned Jeez. the items in the stove. And he also burned Samantha Koenig's purse, but he did keep her makeup and her cards. And I'm assuming, I don't know. I, I mean, he already took the photo of her, so right. I don't know why he kept her makeup and, yeah. and cards. The makeup is what's weird I, to me. Well, yeah, I think it kind of ties in. He kept her hair braid, too. Like, yeah. To me, it seems like he's he's capturing, he's a treasure guy that he's he's taking treasures from. From his victims as a um, trophy, which is, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's pretty crazy that he just completely, basically gutted the shed and just got rid of all evidence. And, I mean, he was in carpentry. He was a handyman. So no one would think twice of this. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it was, you know, his skills with construction definitely were something that he utilized frequently in how he traveled, how he abducted people, how he 
broke down in crime the crime scenes. It's pretty unreal how he was using his everyday job to do so. Yeah, I mean, I just it's crazy to me that he took the items from the shed and mm. Samantha's personal items and burned them in his wood stove. It kind of yeah, it kind of like I know we always go back to this, but we've read it in articles and whatnot that keys kind of has an obsession with Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it interesting that he burned her purse and a couple of her things in his fireplace when I have read articles that Ted Bundy actually burned a skull in his girlfriend's, Oof. his then girlfriend's wood stove at the time. Well, one of the things that's interesting is, is that Israel had a history of, of burning things too because he burned the courier's items in New Hampshire right after he murdered them. And we know for a fact he had set an arson at some point in, I think, Texas. That's true. I didn't even I didn't even think of that. See, that's why you're my partner in crime, literally. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we do this together. Because mm-hmm. I forget yeah. I would forget everything without you. So but yeah. <laughs> um that's the two points that stand out to me on that is that it's not it it almost feels a little bit like part of his ritual, actually, now that I think about it more, because he did it with the couriers, he did it with um, Samantha, it makes you wonder if he's done it before. Mm. I'm sure he has. Yeah. And that's probably why investigators can't find all the other victims. Right. Or any trace of them. So that yeah. that makes complete sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I do have one question for you, um, Ash, before we kind of wrap this up for, for this breakdown. But I was curious. I know a lot of people have said that they feel like Keys wanted to get caught. And we heard me say earlier that I personally don't think that was the case, but I was curious what what you thought. Did you think he was intending to get caught, or do you think it was just he'd gotten too too sure of himself? Ah, uh, man. <laughs> mm. I think I'm gonna have to have to go in the nat boat for this one. I don't think he was intentionally trying to get caught. Mm. Um, kind of like what we spoke about earlier. I feel like he was just trying to go. F- farther and farther to see what he could get away with. Yeah. And I kind of feel like what you had said before was spot on, that he was trying to outsmart investigators and just see how far he could get. Because as we know, Israel Keys actually followed along in the courier's investigation. After right. He, after he murdered them, he watched the news, he followed them, and I think he was kind of like, I think it was kind of like one of those situations where Keyes was like, oh, wow, I'm way smarter than these guys. These guys, like, Mm -hmm. don't even have, like, a whiff of what I'm doing. Like, they have no idea. And so he was kind of of testing his, I don't want to say power, but, like, kind of testing his, like... He was flexing. Yeah, yeah. He was trying to see how far he could get. Um, So I I don't believe he was trying to get caught. I'm with you on that one. Yeah, I definitely agree. I don't think he was either. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think if I have any more questions for you, Nat, but I think we covered everything. <laughs> yeah, I think we this one was pretty pretty deep dive. And then we've got the last and final episode coming up uh, next week, which is mm-hmm. exciting. So, well, almost last. It is the last of the actual story, but we'll have a couple breakdowns afterwards. Yeah. But I did just want to make a quick note about Samantha when I was reading – American Predator, I noticed, like, a really awesome, awesome few words that 
Maureen Callahan stated about Samantha, and I just thought it was really sweet. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of wanted to point those out that, you know, Samantha was said to be a nurturing soul by many who knew her. If there was a person sitting alone in the cafeteria, she was the type to go make small talk with them and, you know, kind of make them feel welcome, which is very sweet. I've I've definitely been that kid alone in the cafeteria, and I yeah. would definitely have wanted a Samantha Koenig to come up and talk to me because... Me too. That's just... It's just so sweet and it's it's an awesome thing for her to do and she's a good person she also wanted to pursue a job with animals she i think in the book it stated she had two dogs of her own that she loved very dearly yeah or she wanted to become a nurse and eventually join the navy so she was a very nurturing soul so i think i think with that nerdlings this concludes the the chapter yeah of, of this of this breakdown I think Nat and I are signing off for the night. We will catch you all next time, you crime-loving nerdlings.